Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your love and goodness to us, that we can praise Your name, that we can even consider, Father, in in a specific fashion, uh, the incarnation of Your Son and how all Your promises in Him are yes and amen. They are given by You. They are given ultimately to Him, but through faith in Him, we receive those promises as well. And we thank You for that. Please give us the wisdom. Give us open hearts, Father, to receive Your Word this morning that we may be changed by it and live to Your glory and to see Your kingdom grow. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right. well we are in Daniel 2, so go ahead and make your way over there. We had a brief stop in Genesis chapter 3 last Lord's Day to kind of establish some of the framework namely to answer the question, where do all of these promises come from? Well, they are based in Genesis, the first announcement of the Gospel, the first announcement of the good news that God, through His Messiah, through His Son, Jesus Christ, would bring salvation to the world. And so we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 2, and we see this theme being expounded upon. Daniel 2 tells us very importantly, through a dream of a pagan king, how God will bring salvation to all the world. Even in cursory fashion. Of course, there's more that can be expounded upon in a chapter like this. So, many of you prophecy aficionados out there, you know, those who have maybe studied Daniel in depth, um, I want to say by way of encouragement, just hold your horses this study. There's going to be a lot that I don't say. You're going to, you might be thinking, what, you know, Jonathan, what about this? What about that? Well, you didn't cover that detail. Um, we simply don't have time in one sermon. And so I will get through as much as I can. But a lot of what is in Daniel chapter 2 will be expounded upon in greater detail in Daniel chapter 7. So about a year and a half from now, when we are in Daniel chapter 7, we will get to these in greater detail. So just, I, I urge patience and we'll get out of the chapter um, Uh, what we can for now, but this is just the first announcement of God's plan for the expansion of His kingdom through His Son, Jesus Christ. And and of course, you know, there is something that can be overwhelming about a passage like this. There's just, there's so much stuff, there's so much good stuff in here, there does come a point where you're almost picking and choosing what you're going to cover, um, and you have to give some good application as well. And so you look at all the, you look at all the goodies and you're like, oh man, I want to, I want to say all of this. I want to cover all of this. I was reminded by this, um, Friday night, uh, Katie and I went to, I'm a part of a local business fraternity and we, they had their Christmas party. And, um, when they, when they, they promised really good food, little did I know how good this food was going to be. After the hors d'oeuvres, they, they, they rolled out the main course and there was, smoked turkey, there was beef ribs, and there was prime rib. I mean, imagine going to a Christmas party and there's two kinds of ribs. Not one, but two. It's pretty amazing. It's like so overwhelming of all the delicious foods. Like, well, well, I can't, I can't eat all of this, so I gotta eat some of it, though, and just enjoy it. It's kinda like how Daniel chapter 2 is for us this morning. And so if you're there, let's pull up to verse 31. So up to now, we have this fairly lengthy episode in this narrative where we covered Nebuchadnezzar's dream. First, we've established the fact that he has had a dream early on in his reign, early on in Daniel's service. So Daniel and his three friends are still very young men at this point. And so Nebuchadnezzar's dream is so troubling, he goes to, he calls his wise men and counselors, all of his people, all of his inner circle, and he not only requests of them to give him the interpretation of his dream, he demands that they do, but also they have this added burden of telling him what the dream is. The actual content. That presents a new challenge. Because if you know what the dream is, you can spin it any way you like, especially if you want to curry the king's favor. Oh, king, you've given me this dream. It's I see nothing but blessing and prosperity in your future, kind of like the prosperity preachers of today. But he says, nope, you're going to try to trick me. You're trying to buy time. I'm not having any more of this. Tell me the dream and the interpretation or I'm going to kill you. And so when Daniel receives word about this decree early on in chapter 2, he makes haste and requests time to pray to God to get an answer. 
And unsurprisingly, the Lord answers Daniel's prayer. Daniel blesses the Lord, beginning in verse 20 of chapter 2, because he hears from the Lord, has the interpretation, has the dream. The execution is halted, and now Daniel is before the king to reveal him to him the dream and its interpretation. And so the purpose, the primary purpose of today's sermon is to run through that dream and give you an interpretation. So, like I said, sometimes as much as I desire to preach to you and to encourage you and to st- spur you on to love and good deeds so you get kind of fired up when you leave here, some of this, again, may sound like a college lecture, hopefully not to too much of a degree, but I want to be faithful in, in giving us some kind of a prophetic framework and understanding uh, what Daniel has said, because many of these items, uh, one in particular especially, has been very hotly debated. Um, so in moving on, we find that Daniel is going to serve Nebuchadnezzar. Ultimately, he's going to serve God in this way, give him the dream and the interpretation, and so we'll run through it. And then next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll get into the most significant part of the dream, that is the stone that is cut out without hands and becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth and, of course, um, lays waste to this statue. And so in light of that, we have our sermon title uh, for, for this morning concerning heavy metal and rock. Now in music history, I'm sure most of you know this, is that heavy metal is a development of, of rock and roll. Okay? And of course we understand also that God gave us rock and roll in order to bless us and to restore music to the masses. And so out of that came a more aggressive form of music called heavy metal. You got heavy metal, you got power metal, doom metal, black metal, all kinds of metal. Some of it gets pretty dark, incidentally. And so I would suggest that, like the whole world, even music, even things like metal and rock, can be redeemed and used for God's glory. And many of you are amening in your heart right now, but I do believe that that's true. But in the case of Daniel, it is the rock that comes after the metal and puts down this giant metal man that is so prominent in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so, in light of that, we will save the fifth and final empire, that is the kingdom of Christ, for the next time so we can look at that in greater detail. But in this case, we see God's intervention through Daniel so that life is preserved. And of course, gives us a foreshadowing of the gospel, a word of truth, but also a word of life um, as we proclaim it faithfully. So let's, uh, let's look beginning at verse 28 and 29 because we kind of glossed over this uh, the first time. So verse 28 of Daniel chapter 2, we read this, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Now that, that term latter pops up uh, many times, not only the Old Testament, but especially in the New, and there are a variety of interpretations. Uh, some would say, it, we are, you know, uh, respective to that time, the latter days represented the final days of the Old Covenant order. We talked about that a lot in our study of First and Second Peter. Some would say that the latter days represents the entire Gospel age. I think there's some truth to both of those. But we know definitely from this is that he, Daniel's explaining to King Nebuchadnezzar that the dream you had re- is revealing to you what is going to happen from here on out, right? Days later than the current day, later times, culminating, of course, in the establishment of Christ's empire. So he says this, this was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. So he's acknowledging already that these were not merely dreams, they were visions from God. God was communicating to King Nebuchadnezzar, something very important regarding the kingdom of God. As for you, verse 29, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. So, O king, first thing you got to know is that God gave you this. He can reveal these mysteries. He can, he can give me the interpretation, which he has. And the things that you are dreaming are things that are going to happen after this day, and into the future. And so what this is describing, this, this dream of this statue that you can see here, describes the course of human history via dominant world powers until the inauguration of the kingdom of God. So right off the bat, I do not interpret this in such a way where it says that there is some kind of conclusiveness here in the kingdom of God, or what we 
we formally know as the consummation of the kingdom of Christ. This stone that comes and crashes into the statue is not primarily describing something that is happening at the end of time. It is something that begins, that is inaugurated in the first century with Christ in his death, resurrection, and ascension. So it's describing the establishment of God's kingdom. Also note that as the statue descends, there is a decline in value, weight, and unity. So gold is worth more than silver. Silver is worth more than bronze. Bronze is worth more than iron. However, there is an increase in strength. And I would add to that, there's an increase in brittleness. There's an increase in fragility with the added uh, clay. But there's also an, in, there's an increase in strength. As we know, gold is malleable. Gold is a soft metal. It's very valuable and precious, but it is, it's soft. So silver is stronger than gold. Bronze is stronger than silver. And of course, iron is stronger than bronze. So I think that easily represents uh, military might, which is consistent with the respective political and military prowess and influence with each successive kingdom, right? Persia conquers Babylon, Greek conquers Persia, and of course Rome comes in and takes over the, the Hellenistic world, overcomes Greece. And so each is stronger than its predecessor politically and militarily. And in some cases, especially with the Greek Empire, culturally. So keep that in mind as we move down. So also note, by way of introduction, the distinction between the nature of the statue itself versus the stone cut out without hands shows us the inevitable conflict between the kingdoms of men and the kingdoms of God. So God in this will have the final say. It's not as if he has no use for the statue, but I would see this statue as somewhat of, of God building a household. A heretofore old household. Because he is using these empires to preserve his people. God is clearly with his people. So we shouldn't see pure unadulterated antagonism in this statue. Yes, these, I believe this statue representing these empires, they get more paganized as, as uh, the years roll on. But it's not as if God is absent. However, he has an ultimate plan to undermine and break these worldly powers so that out of them will come the kingdom of his beloved son. Once again, more on that later, but we're pretty much introducing all of this. But there is conflict. Note also the statue is destroyed as a unity, and that's why there's a lot of debate regarding the sequence of this destruction and why sometimes, ultimately, by some prophecy pundits, this statue is thrown into the future. It basically re-rises again. There's characteristics of all of them in this eventual kingdom of the Antichrist, which is going to emerge from Europe. There's tons of books I can point you to if you're interested in chasing that down. I don't think that that's what this is about um, in the immediate sense, even though there are some future implications. We also want to acknowledge, as we have already, the relationship between the statue and the kingdoms of Daniel 7. So I think that will, you know, hopefully we will whet our initial appetite today and then, of course, fill in all of the blanks because Daniel 7 is more specific. But this is giving us um, the layout of what is going to happen. And so a couple things, I think by way of, um, in, again, not just introduction, but application, just kind of things we want to keep in mind regarding the truths that are distilled in this narrative. And the first is this, is that the kingdoms of men, no matter how mighty, all have their time, but are ultimately subservient to God's purposes, right? These, are, these kingdoms are not operating independent from divine intervention. In fact, God, by His sovereign hand, is responsible for their establishment and their ruin, as He has been throughout human history. Secondly, and I think this is very obvious, is the trustworthiness of God's Word. Where are the astrologers at this point? Where are, where are the Chaldeans? Where are the wizards? Where are those people who supposedly know things? Only Daniel is there with God's word entrusted to him. And of course, we find as time goes on, everything that the Lord reveals to Daniel happens historically. That's why many people, especially in liberal scholastic circles, despise the book of Daniel. Because these things are staring at them in the face. They think no way could Daniel have been penned six, five or six centuries before the coming of Christ. It just it, Daniel knows too much. There's too much there 
and it is presented with too much accuracy for us to be able to take it seriously, to really think that it could have been written earlier. You know, No man could have possibly known that. And we would say, exactly, but God knows, and he told a man. So we don't have to speculate. And we can continue to interpret the world in which we live in light of divine revelation as our final authority, right? God's word, we begin and we end with God's word. So three, connected to these, God is demonstrating his sovereignty over human affairs. We've understood that throughout uh, our study so far. Fourthly, God, of course, is building a house for himself and for his people, preserving them until he builds a new house through the work of his son. And here's another one, and I think this is where we have to stop and check our own hearts, right? We always want to examine ourselves when it comes to being under the teaching and preaching of God's Word. I think one thing we, that, that Daniel makes abundantly clear here, as he is speaking for the Lord, is there is no such thing as divided loyalty, right? There's no neutrality when it comes to the end of these kingdoms. There is the statue, and then there is the rock, okay? One will remain, right? There can only be one. These are naturally antagonistic to one another. We noted that in our study of Genesis 3 last Lord's Day, right? The seed of the woman and the seed of the dragon. And they're both going to be taking shots at each other until one finally is destroyed. And so I hope as we go through the study, we all know whose side we're on. We We cannot continue to claim Christ and flirt with the kingdoms of this world. We cannot build alliances and partnerships with this world that Christ himself is putting under his feet as the gospel is proclaimed. So please keep that in mind. As Rush Dooney says, man has sought to efface the burden of human guilt and misery, unite mankind into one world, and restore paradise to man. That's, that's the allure of the kingdoms of this world. Come with us. We have the answers. We have the wisdom. We have the strength. And we have the funding. That's especially true in our own country. We have this thing, right, called the Federal Reserve, and it prints money out of thin air, and it can print infinity dollars. And the Lord tells us, do not put your hope in man or his resources, or his wisdom, or his money, or his sweet fighter planes. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God, because it is God that is going to restore paradise to man in this world, in a restored world planet earth. And this is what Daniel, is precisely what Daniel is communicating to us. So let's get to the king's dream. We are in verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2, and once again, concerning this narrative, I don't have much of an outline. We're just going to try to to walk through this, and um, we'll use what time we have because we have to get out of here early, but we'll do what we can. So verse 31, you, O king, were looking, and behold, There was a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. So he's using some very uh, vivid words here, extraordinary splendor, something that is excellent or or exceeding, meaning that this, this statue was like, bam, you can't miss this. It was sort of in his face. No wonder it was so memorable. Splendor speaks of its brightness, the, this, the outstanding quality of this, of this statue. And then he says, awesome. I think a better translation for that may actually be the word dreadful. There was something about this statue. We don't, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was moving or talking or what, but there is something about it in particular that was terrifying to the king. And this is actually, this word awesome or dreadful is the same word used to describe the beast in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. There is something scary about it. And so now we kind of get this glimpse as to why King Nebuchadnezzar was so disturbed uh, by his dreams. Then going down to verse 32, the head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So here we have the heavy metal man. So the visual is clear, and most of us have at some time or another have probably listened to some good presentations on the book of Daniel. But behold, Behold the statue, and that gives us roughly the dates. There's plenty of debate, depending on, depending on your dating system, as to um, the, the beginning and the end of each of these respective uh, empires. Once again, dating them is not the, it's not the point. 
It's, it's about God's sovereign plan within them and then from them to establish the kingdom of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. So here's the statue. Now we see the statue devastated. 34, you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. So we can make a couple of observations here initially. One is that this kingdom is different in origin and I would say quality and of course composition from these other kingdoms. It is not a part of the statue. It comes from without. So if it's a different origin, and we would say a supernatural origin. I would even suggest that the stone was cut without hands not only means that it is not ultimately the work of man's hands, but it points to the significance of Christ's virgin birth. And so it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Okay, Not merely dismantled, crushed. This is a devastating blow. A very, again, very vivid picture of what God has planned for these worldly empires. And then, it, then, then there's more. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff, the worthless part of wheat, from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. Once again, very significant and points to this application of div- divided loyalty. Nothing of them is going to remain, so why are you holding on to the kingdoms of this world? Why are you not clinging to Jesus Christ? Because if there is no divided loyalty, there's also no divided destiny. You're not going to go on into eternity half your foot in hell and half your foot in, in glory. You will share the destiny of the kingdom in which you are standing. So if you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, you will share in the glory of His kingdom and receive the inheritance that you were chosen for before the foundation of this world. You stand in the kingdoms of this world, Just like chaff, you will be blown away by the wind. And not a trace of you will be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. I would say that actually points forward to the work of the Holy Spirit. Blowing away the chaff, making room as the Gospel goes forward for this mountain, the stone to grow and become a mountain that fills the whole earth. So like I said, we will, we will cover that in great detail in successive Sundays. So that's where we have this important reminder of the grandeur and the, and the gradual um, growth of the kingdom of God. I don't think anything about this is going to be instantaneous. I, I, I don't think we need to worry so much about the timing as we, do, as we, need, to, as we need to think about the, the, the gravity of the situation. right? But it is gradual. The fact that the stone becomes a mountain over time and not instantaneously tells us that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And I would say we're living within this time frame right now. We are, we are, as it were, on the mountain of God right now. Wherever the gospel goes, I will go, I will, I will come to argue. Wherever the gospel goes, wherever the gospel is believed, there you find Mount Zion. There you find this mountain. There you find the kingdom of God. And so, the important thing is, is not so much the sequence. Because some would say, well, because of the sequence, it demands that we understand this crushing, this crushing blow on the statue as yet future. So that's thrown all the way into the future. So again, I don't want to construct a straw man here, but these are actual arguments that have been made in favor of particular views. I want to go through the three main ones. Because um, as I mentioned before, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not my desire to go and exhaustively introduce every competing view. I would like I would rather positively defend a particular view and if you want to, you know, if you want to text me, maybe even I mean I can get texts on my computer right now. Um, I know all you sinners out there texting with one another and posting things on Telegram and whatnot. But if you want to text me or call me later on, Jonathan, you're dead wrong on this. Here's why you want to discuss it. I am I am more of an open because again, we're not going to cover this exhaustively, but I can point you to resources that do. So with that in hand, Here's, here's, the, uh, here, here, here's the first reason. I don't believe that this can be future because Daniel himself indicates that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. So we're dealing with something that, that is nearer to Daniel's time. Secondly, 
It makes sense for the rock to strike the statue specifically at the feet because it is during that empire that this rock will do its crushing work. Or I could say inaugurate its crushing work. The purpose of this dream is not to give a blow-by-blow timeline of Christ's kingdom work. So it's not the timing of everything that is meant to grasp our attention, but rather the severity and gravity of it. And I would say the, the majesty as well. So if you look at verse 34 and 35 again, right? Continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay. Then the iron, the clay, bronze and silver and gold were crushed all at the same time. So the vision has them crushed at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. So we understand too that we, like we have to, we have to understand this work in history, but we, but we don't want to also make a mistake and say, okay, that means that whenever this happens, that means Babylon was overturned. No, we understand that Babylon was conquered by Persia and then Persia by Greece. So we have, that's what I'm saying. We need to understand this within its proper context. That through the work of Christ, all of this will be undermined. But it is during the Roman Empire, I will submit, that this crushing work begins. So the stone crushed them, and it says they were crushed. So this destroying is depicted as both active and passive. On one hand, the stone that is cut out without hands is able to crush these empires, but also that they are completely helpless to do so. They've had their time, they've had their authority and power and their land, and now the Lord comes to take them away. Right? How is that for a vivid picture of the saints of God plundering this world? as his kingdom expands. So that means the legacy of these kingdoms of men will come to an end. That old order will be done away with so that the new order, with Christ at its head and as its king, as the author of the new humanity, can, through the preaching of the gospel, see the nations converted, baptized, and establish the new heavens and new earth. That is what is being described here. Here's one more thing to keep in mind. The stone also indicates suddenness. The kingdoms of man expect things to continue as they are. Yes, the vision does give a sudden destruction, even though we see the implications play out throughout time. But one thing is that they do not anticipate a transcendent power to interrupt their various structures. Foreign, arm, foreign armies, you know, they, don't, they, don't, they, they may expect a foreign army to come in and lay siege and then fight a prolonged battle, but they certainly don't expect that from God. That's what should make this so profound. We see God acting in history to take over the world through His Son. But the kingdoms of man never really expect. I think a lot of people, they get into power and they just expect that they are going to remain in power forever. Now we have certain term limits in the United States, especially within the presidency, and for good reason. But you go to places like North Korea and you have dictators there who are basically worshipped as gods and they are family dynasties. See the Kim family, right? And some people like them, they, they acquire such dictatorial power that they never expect disaster to be looming just around the corner. They think that once they have power, they will have it forever. And that's exactly what is being undermined here, among many other things. But we have to understand the severity. Even though the, mount, the, the stone will become a mountain over time, we still don't want to deny the suddenness and the, prof- and the profundity of this. It's going to be disastrous for the kingdoms of man, and they will be swept away like chaff in the wind. So here's the interpretation. So he gives the king the dream, and he says, This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. So these are, these are ancient titles. You, O king, are the king of kings. Once again, suggesting Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, just the degree of his power. um, He's right. He's a despot. He has unilateral power. He says the word and you will be torn limb from limb and your house will become a public restroom. And so that title is appropriate. And we see ultimately that that title is given to Jesus himself as king of kings and lord of lords in the book of Revelation. But note here too, This is the most straightforward one. You are that head of gold, O king. And and Daniel is clear in 
telling him that power is only Nebuchadnezzar's because God has given it to him. And that's going to be made abundantly clear in Daniel chapter 4. So there are certain connections that this chapter has going forward with other chapters. And we'll get into those later. But God makes it clear who, where all this power comes from. It's all borrowed authority. God makes men what they are and who can stay His hand or accuse Him of wrongdoing. So basically, according to this, the Babylonian Empire begins in 605. Again, depending where you are or what book you're reading, some would say 606, 605 continues to about 539, 538 when King Belshazzar is assassinated. And then, so you have the Babylonian Empire, and then it says, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. So this can be a tricky word. Inferior, but we think inferior how? Right? It can't mean inferior militarily or geographically, especially given that the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon, first of all. So its military might, one could say, exceeds that of Babylon. Also, its total landmass vastly exceed, uh, exceeds that of the Babylonian Empire. It lasts more or less from uh, 559 B.C. to about 331 B.C. And of course, there was the battle at Gagamela where Alexander the Great uh, conquered Persia. So, when it comes to being inferior, I would suggest that this refers to a moral or spiritual inferiority. Now, as we know... Nebuchadnezzar, as represented by the head of gold, is the king whose conversion to Yahweh and the honor of Yahweh's name is most clearly stated. Right? He is the king that made blasphemy a capital crime consistent with Old Testament law. I think Daniel chapter 4 is a clear depiction of his actual conversion. I suspect that we will spend glory with King Nebuchadnezzar. So he made a radical turn when God humbled him but we do not see the same degree of commitment from successive kingdoms. Although we do see King Darius in Daniel chapter 6, I believe. Yeah, if you want to turn there very quickly in your Bibles. Um, after Daniel was delivered from the lion's den, King Darius the king, Darius the king wrote to all peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land. So he made a decree to the entire Persian Empire. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. So here he acknowledges Daniel's God. He, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion is forever, will be forever. That as much is repeated in Daniel chapter 7. So we would say that King Darius at this point is spot on. He is describing the true and living God, accurately. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Even I believe it's the, believe it's the, the gospel according to Isaiah that calls Cyrus by name before Cyrus is even on the throne. So some pretty amazing um, uh, truth being communicated uh, to the prophets. So it's clear that in all of these things, even no matter, even no matter how pagan these empires get, God is on the throne. He is calling the shots and he is responsible for raising these kingdoms and then laying them waste. But he is by his own sovereign decree calling these so-called earthly kings as his servants. They are achieving his ends. So we see that from Nebuchadnezzar. We see it from Darius. However, we would also acknowledge that the paganism of the successive kingdoms and rejection of Yahweh as Lord becomes more thoroughly enculturated in each of these. Hellenism, for example, right? When you see, when you have Hellenism, you have, you have the Greek Empire, Greek culture, and then spilling over into Roman culture, you see more and more of this pantheon, these, these gods who are made in the image of man, who are complete reprobates, and basically an expression of the ungodly surrounding culture. So the word here used here as inferior is used many times in the book of Daniel. Right? So it, it doesn't refer to like inferior per se, but it actually is the word that is used for, for earth, land, or ground. So we can see it is closer to the ground. Some, some commentators suggest that means it's more earthly, it's more humanistic, it's less lofty and less heavenly if you want to make that division. 
Some would say that with the, the, the arms, it re- represents some kind of twofold nature or combination of Media and Persia. But when the Persian Empire took over Babylon, Media was already in it with Persia. So we don't have to read too much of that in there. It's the statue of man, so it's natural that it has two arms. So moving on. Then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. So this, this is the one that has the most brief description. Um, we understand this as the Greek Empire headed up by Alexander of Macedon, popularly known as Alexander the Great. Here's a guy who just started conquering and just kept going. So you see the vastness, uh, the vastness of his empire. Much, much larger than uh, the Babylonian Empire. Covers, uh, covers more landmass, I, I believe, than Persia. But it is, it is grand. Covers so much uh, landmass. And of course, then you have the advent of an influence of Hellenism. Uh, Alexander the Great kind of wanted to unite the, the world that he was conquering um, under the, the culture of Hellenism. And so he conquered, as you can see on the map, clear to India. And, and it is said that he just kept conquering and conquering, fighting more and more battles until even his, even his men got tired of conquering. They go into him saying, hey, we, we, we've, we've conquered enough. Can we please just take a nap? Can we take a rest? But Alexander, uh, very successful in his battles and, and just seemed to crush everything before him. Um, it is said that when he came to Jerusalem, Jerusalem opened its, do- opened its doors because they heard about what happened to Tyre. We can get more on that later on, but uh, uh, Alexander the Great represented what was truly seen at that time as an unstoppable, an unstoppable force. And so uh, that lasted, it is thought, from about 323 to 30, uh, 30 BC. And once again, we see Rome kind of subsume uh, the Greek Empire because the Roman Empire, at least in seed form, had been around for quite a, a, a long time, hundreds of years. So in Rome, if you want to write these dates down, just interesting as history, we have the period of kings, which is often, descri- often described as that, from about 625 to 510 BC. You had these people in the Italian peninsula known as the Etruscans that developed eventually into the Romans. You have Republican Rome going all the way up to about 31 BC, and that, of course, would cover... Um, the, the, the reign of Julius Caesar. And then, of course, you have Imperial Rome, beginning with Caesar Augustus at 31 BC, going all the way, it is thought, to as far as 565. So there's a lot, this is where a lot of the, the, the prophecy speculation comes from, is there, there's this question of how long did the Roman Empire really last? And of course, you can see that the Roman Empire is, is ginormous. It covers a lot of, a lot of land. You see, you see Italy there in the middle. To the left, you have Spain. And then, of course, to the right and, to the, and, and down, you have Egypt. So it, 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 Rome's reign, Rome's power was, was, very, um, was very large. And so, once again, so much of the discussion comes from this speculation is, okay, when did the Roman Empire actually fall? Okay. So again, like some would say, I think the, the, the highest date I found was 565 A.D. with the emperor Justinian. Some would say, oh no, it never actually fell. You had the Holy Roman Empire, and right now it's headed by the Pope. It never actually fell. That's why the ten toes represent a revived Roman Empire with the ten-state or ten-king confederacy. Once again, all kinds of speculation, discussion, something to offend everybody, and it's just beautiful that we discuss Scripture together. Um, But verse 40, he says, there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So the first thing noted is that this, this, um, this empire, thought of as Rome, is an absolute juggernaut. Iron is much, much stronger than bronze and silver and gold. Representing again the, the, its military might. It says it will crush and break all these in pieces. So it'll be the top dog and for quite a while. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron. So it's not as if the clay is going to completely weaken. It'll just signify weakness. Inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, or what is often thought of as, you know, soft clay, terracotta, right? Baked clay, some would say. 
Uh, let's see, where are we? So some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. So pay attention in this part of the text to in that, you know, in that or as, and, and in that you saw. Because what's happening is that Daniel is describing different characteristics of this combination of, of iron and clay. And I will say, but this is probably the most difficult, easily the most difficult part of the passage. And of course, there has been no end to the theological snobbery in its interpretation. And so I would say, as your, as your pastor, there is no view that I would call absolutely airtight. Sometimes we're so obsessed with getting the right interpretation, we fail to acknowledge what may be the best interpretation. Some, some interpretations are more, are, are, are superior to others. Some have more backing, more exegetical, uh, footing. And, and so I don't want to say that it merely comes down to opinion, but as we discipline ourselves to study God's word closely and carefully and trying to be internally consistent as scripture interprets scripture, we want to do the best that we can to arrive at as clear of a conclusion as possible. So I'd say in all things, especially as it regards to our interpretation here, in all things charity, right? It's easy for us to wag our heads at one another and say, oh, there's no way. Oh, you're way off. How can you be so stupid to think that, right? Let's deal with one another with, with grace and with patience and work together to um, study God, God's word as, as we do, iron sharpening iron, right? So one man sharpens another. Let's not use, use these discussions to tear one another down. So uh, that's my pastoral word to you guys this morning. So each prominent view that I will present has its own defenses, some good or some not so good. And I will, I will concede, some are terrible. Some are terrible. And some does, in some cases, you are forced to ask a question like, with all due respect, sir, love you as my brother in Christ, but how did you come up with that? I mean, let's question one another, but still be gracious. So, I mean, that, that kind of lends itself to the irony that Christians continue to fight each other over an issue dealing with unprecedented, unprecedented worldwide peace. So let's not undermine that peace that God has given us. So, again, rather than trying to debunk each of these ones, I'm going to come out of this and try to present uh, what I believe is the most accurate. So, for starters, the first one is what we would call the dispensational view. So if you grew up in a Bible church, but especially Calvary Chapel, this is probably the view that you were taught. And typically, though not exclusively, uh, the ten toes in here are interpreted as ten kings or regions of a, of a revived Roman Empire, usually as expressed by today's European Union. So as soon as they started talking about the European Union, you'll see, you'll see a, a growth of this suddenly, especially in, 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 in uh, expository preaching in the 70s and 80s, and then, of course, into the 90s. When the Euro European Union started to form, I mean, all roads led to Daniel chapter 2 with these, with, these, uh, with these toes, with iron and clay mixture. Like, oh, this is it! This is what is happening! And that is what we call, my friends, newspaper exegesis. Do not interpret the biblical text in light of current events. We have to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. But that is, that is still probably the most common view. Although I would say it is fading just by observation and a return to a more reformed covenantal view of the Scriptures. But that remains a very popular interpretation. And I would add that today's European Union has 27 member nations. And dealing with the hermeneutic system that is really ironclad on a literal interpretation, 27 is not 10. It's 17 more than 10. So, that, so that's, the, that's the most common view. So that is what we call a futuristic view, that these toes have not happened yet. And that, of course, lends itself to this assertion that the Roman Empire never really died. It's kind of been hanging around, even if it's on life support, but it is going to arise again, and the Antichrist is going to reveal himself. So the second view, prominent view, uh, sees the iron legs as Rome, and I think accurately so, and the toes in clay as subsequent world empires throughout redemptive history. So again, we're living coterminous with this now. And so the ten toes symbolize totality or completeness. So it's not trapped by a literal view that there's ten literal kingdoms. Not eleven, not nine and a half, ten. Okay? Twelve is right out. 
So this symbolizes totality or completeness. So this interpretation would say that we are living in this time right now. And then the rock cut without hands comes eventually and crushes all world powers, past and present. And even within this interpretation, there are a variety of views as to whether or not this rock, the rock that is cut out without hands, represents the second coming or a present abiding and growing presence and influence. I actually think this is a pretty solid view. I think it's well supported, especially with the the the, the tricky language that is involved in describing the clay and the toes. This is not an easy passage. That's why I urge grace. Okay. So another view and the view that I hold, and I would say I hold tentatively because I may change my mind and present something completely different next Lord's Day. But hang in there. The ten toes is interpreted literally, and because it belongs to the Roman Empire, it is seen to represent the first ten emperors. Now again, the, the Roman Empire officially began with Caesar Augustus, but before him you had Julius Caesar who did become a dictator, and I actually was able to see a play this past week um, by Shakespeare, put on by sixth graders. And it was amazing what they were able to cover, cover in just several minutes. Hey, it's Julius Caesar. Hey, isn't he great? Hey, guys, he has too much power. He's dangerous. Let's kill him. And so they did. He was killed by his best friend, Brutus. I mean, very, very tragic, but that was basically the nuts and bolts of the play. He's got too much power. Um, you know, it's like the Jedi taking over the Senate and Palpatine says, hey, you see, I told you, Anakin, the Jedi have become too strong. They're going to they're gonna enslave us all. It's kind of like that, like a BC version of... of, of uh, of the of, of uh, the the rise of the Sith or return of, revenge of the Sith. There we go. So first ten emperors. There are ten: Julius Caesar, then Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and then Emperor Vespasian and his son Titus. And we'll explain the significance of this at some point. So. The clay, we find, represents at least three things. Now go and pay attention to where it says in as much or as this or as that. It do, the clay doesn't just represent one thing strictly. So I'll present a couple of things here. So one is disunity in the empire. We find weakness, right? Where you find weakness, you find disunity. Um, so disunity, and then you have inherent weakness from that disunity, and then you have the clay representing the clay representing the Jews, the presence of the Jews and their, and their part in the Roman Empire, especially in the first century. Now note, these ten, this is important, these ten emperors were all emperors in the first century, starting B.C., of course. And so, one of the reasons that I take the iron mixed with clay to refer to the Roman Empire still is that the clay is describing not another kingdom or series of kingdoms entirely, but because there is not a clear break, you notice there's not a clear break between the iron and the clay and the iron in the same manner that there is a break between the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron. So it's something qualitatively is being described here regarding the Roman Empire, but it is still the same kingdom, and the clay represents lack of stability, inner strife, and turmoil. Okay. So that's how I interpret it. So going on, when it says it's going to crush all these, all, all these, so we see it has devastating power. So that means any that oppose it, and for quite a while, any that opposed the Roman Empire were put down. You want you want you want a funny bedtime story? Read, read about the. Um, the slave rebellion headed up by Spartacus. When, they, when his army finally fell, they were made an example of they were actually crucified one by one all the way to Rome as a warning to anyone who would dare to mount another uprising. Rome took sedition very seriously. And to oppose them was met with very severe and swift retribution. So this, this crush and break Right. So this note this note the similarity in language here when he talks about crushing, uh, crushing and breaking. Uh, let's see, verse verse forty. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So so I I think this is significant 
Because here, it, it's not until the Roman Empire where you really see the, this, the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man at loggerheads, right? What, what, if you were a loyal Roman citizen, what was your creed? Anybody know? What was your creed? If you were a true Roman citizen, what, what, was, your, what was your doctrine? Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Now note here, it's using the same language, crush and break, as the stone cut out without hands. Rome saw itself as more than just a great empire. It saw itself as Savior. Its emperors came to be deified. The emperor saw himself as God. The emperor saw himself as Savior. So Acts 4.12, we've, we've talked about this before. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by whom we must be saved. That was originally attributed to Caesar Augustus. He was seen as Savior. He was seen as Messiah. So by the time Jesus, Jesus arrives on the scene and puts down all principalities and powers, and that made plain through his death and resurrection and subsequent ascension, you had Christians going around saying, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And that represented competition. And that's why you have this, this severe persecution that was mounted eventually within the Roman Empire, but I think is described quite vividly in the book of Revelation. But it does the same thing. The same thing is described of it as the stone that destroys the statue. Rome crushes and breaks. And that's how it saw itself. Irresistible. Having unilateral power. Right? That it could say that, that Rome had this saving quality. Right? That Rome was, that Rome was the light. Right? That through it, mankind would be saved. But it is also a divided kingdom. Though it crushes and breaks, it itself is divided. So I think what that means is that it will lack the inherent unity of the previous empires, but it will still be strong, right? Babylon had Nebuchadnezzar. The Medo-Persian Empire had the law of the Medes and the Persians. right? That was unalterable even by king. And of course, in the Greek Empire, what we had was Hellenism. So we had all these uniting cultural factors, which Rome did not have, did not have to the same degree, though it desired it. So that clay also represents Division lacking the unity of previous empires. We say, well, where do we get that from historically? So we have to understand that even early on in the Roman Empire, Rome was beset by betrayal, infighting, murder, and suicide. Now check this out. Okay. Julius Caesar, as we know, was murdered, stabbed by his own friends. The emperor Claudius was murdered. Nero, while the assassins were on their way, committed suicide. Galba was murdered. Otho committed suicide. Vitellius was publicly struck down by Vespasian supporters. So we can't look at Rome and see that, I mean, in some sense, the Pax Romana was more of a claim than it was a reality. There was plenty of envy. There was plenty of strife. There was plenty of greed and murder. And you read Rome's history, and it was full of that. Rome was not Christian, friends. Nor was Rome civilized. It just basically put a suit and tie on the brutality of previous empires. But it shed blood all the same and in brutal fashion. So you can see clearly on a historical level there was disunity, there was turmoil. In the first hundred years of the Roman Empire, there was division. So any claims of unity are tenuous at best. But I, I think it remains an empty claim based on all of the betrayal and murder that was going on in the top echelons of its government. So I think it's, again, I think there's, there's good support that the first ten emperors represent the ten toes with the presence of that discord and strife. So in verse 44, if you want to skip down there, that'll be next time. But just to lend support to this argument, in verse 44, we read that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. It will be set up, mind you, established, not concluded, not consummated, but established. It will mark a clear, definitive beginning. Well, where do we see that? We see that in the reign of Jesus Christ. So if the ten toes represent ten kings, then it follows that during the reign of these kings, the kingdom of God in Christ is inaugurated. Right? We don't have a lot of trouble defending that because... Christ rose during the reign of the emperor Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar, 
who would be king number three if we started with Julius Caesar. So all this happens within an identifiable, concrete historical timeline. And of course, we can't talk about Rome with talking about the sacking of Jerusalem in AD 70. So all this happened by the time we reach the Emperor Vespasian's reign. And what is significant about AD 70? It represents the fall of the old covenant order. Right? Christ is putting his enemies under his feet. And he has been vindicated by the Ancient of Days as described in Daniel chapter 7. If you want to turn there very quickly, verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Right? This is describing the work of the stone cut out without hands in chapter 2. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. Well, how is that going to happen? Well, the, the, the empire has to grow and has to infiltrate and take over all earthly kingdoms for that to happen, which tells us that's why the rock becomes a mountain which covers the whole earth. So we see it described here in more vivid terms. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this happens when Christ ascends and he is presented before the Father. When did that happen? That happened in the first century. So this is not something we throw into the future. We're living in light of it right now. So that's, that's where we start, is that Christ is currently reigning. We're not looking so much for a future, a future reign as we are the consummation of his present reign and rule. Right now he's at the right hand of the Father. So we've covered that from Daniel 7, uh, 13 through 14. His kingdom won't be destroyed. But then we say, okay, well, we want to establish the fact that in this time, Christ's kingdom is inaugurated. What's our, what's our go-to text? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All right? What, what is required for a kingdom? Well, first you need a king. Well, we have King Jesus who has all authority. That's another thing. You need the king, and the king has to have authority. He has to be able to speak, and his word is done. Right. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ring a bell. Right. What else does a kingdom need? So it needs a king, it needs power and authority. It also means borders. These borders are constantly expanding to eventually subdue the entire world. It requires subjects. Well, Jesus is talking to his disciples, his initial subjects. And as people the world over believe the gospel and repent of their sins and come to Christ in saving faith, there is another subject one. But all will eventually be subjected. And then, of course, we have, well, laws. A kingdom has laws. What law do we live by? We live by the law of Christ. Even in the Great Commission, when Jesus says, baptize them, telling his subjects to go baptize the nations, teaching them everything I have commanded you, right? That, that we would call that the, the king's law, right? So we, can, we clearly have here, defended from Matthew 28, a defense of the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. I don't think many of us in here would argue against that, that the kingdom of Christ has been inaugurated. It's an ever-present, growing, inevitable, irresistible reality that is crushing these other kingdoms. We are in the period of time where they are being blown away by the wind as chaff. And then I think the real one here, the one that kind of puts this debate to rest as to whether or not Christ is reigning as king of this world is Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Who is the ruler of the kings of the earth? Jesus Christ. When is this being written to John? Sometime in the 60s A.D. It's, it's settled. It's a settled matter in the mind of John, but most importantly, in the mind of God. Christ is king right now. Christ is ruling right now. He is the king of the earth right now. So we're not throwing this idea of this earthly rule of Christ into the future. It is a present reality that is undeniable. Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The kingdom, the existing kingdom, the present kingdom in the first century. So that's how we defend that. 
That's why I think that this is that, that what Daniel is describing is something that happened in, in the first century, but its implications continue even up to now until the consummation. We can talk about that in greater depth later. But here we go. As far as the Jews, we're running out of time, but I, I, I refer to the Jews as the clay because they are described as being clay in prophetic literature leading into the exile. So Isaiah 64, 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter, all of us are the work of your hand. Jeremiah eighteen six. Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as a potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Right. I am sovereign over you. Lamentations 4, 2. Gravity is really affecting my mic today. Um, Lamentations 4, 2. The precious sons of Zion waited against fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen jars, the work of a potter's hand. So what I'm saying is this will be familiar language to the Jews. They are clay, and they play as part of the clay within the Roman Empire. Now, why is that significant? Is because we do see a real political alliance between the Jews and the Romans. Now, remember, in the early days of the Gospel being preached, there wasn't a whole lot of persecution from the Romans toward Christians because they basically looked at Christians and because most of them were Jewish, it was sort of thought that, ah, there's not much of a distinction here between Judaism and Christianity. But as time went on, they became increasingly distinct and the Jews called for the persecution of Christians and allied themselves with Romans in order to persecute Christians. So you, you read all over Paul's letters. He talks about the Jew, he talks about the Judaizers. He talks about, he talks about the circumcision. He talks about beware of dogs, beware of the false circumcision. Why? Because Christians are the true circumcision. And you read it in, um, you read in the book of Revelation, the synagogue of Satan. So this opposition, this opposing factor from the Jews is very easy to identify. But again, as time went on, the, the Jews tried to increasingly distance themselves uh, from the Christians, and from there sparked a severe persecution. And so when we get to this part of, uh, you know, the mingling with the sons of men and this, this uh, alliance between, the, this partnership between the clay and, and, and the iron, we kind of see what happens. Yes, they will mingle, they will partner together. However, in disobedience to the Lord, they wouldn't, the Jews wouldn't remain salt and light to the Gentile nations, right? They, they would be disobedient in their call to be good, to, to be good and faithful servants to the Lord. They would compromise and they would ally themselves to a pagan empire. And the proof of that is at the crucifixion of Jesus. We have no king but Caesar. That would be a scandalous, un, unheard of thing for them to say. No king but Caesar? How about Yahweh? Right. No king but Caesar. We're with this guy, right? Not him, not Jesus, not the Lord's anointed king that he is to set up, as Psalm 2 describes. But there's this mingling there. A mingling that will eventually result in the destruction of, of, of Judaism. So reading from Revelation 17, 1-5, I believe it is describing this alliance. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Here, here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So Israel is often described as a harlot in the Old Testament. This is just the final fulfillment of that. Still, still playing the whore, still cheating on God, still being unfaithful, and partnering herself with the beast who is Rome. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Goes down Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This is a final indictment against apostate Israel. You are the mother of harlots. Don't claim that you, again, don't claim that you have Abraham as your father. Right? Don't even go there. You are so unfaithful, so apostate, the axe is already laid to the root. God is ready to cut you down. And you're claiming some kind of physical heritage and worthiness. But this is where you have apostate Israel or Jerusalem partnering with the Roman Empire to persecute Christians. And it's easy to see clear reading of the New Testament concerning this 
partnership and concerning the Jews' rejection of the Messiah. And even though these, these two do not mix, they do not adhere, Jew, the Jews should not mix with Rome. They will try and the partnership will not last. And eventually, the Jews will revolt against Rome and the Emperor Vespasian will, would, would dispatch the Roman army under command of Titus to destroy Jerusalem in AD 70. And that's how all this goes down. So I believe that the majority of this has already been fulfilled. And uh, we can talk about uh, the greater implications of that later on. But I did want to isolate the, uh, the stone, right? The stone cut out without hands because in there is the richness and beauty and majesty of the gospel. It's what's making everything that we do today matter. So I, I do pray that this is helpful. And like I said, it is a jet tour through a huge chunk of text, but um, I'm happy to discuss it in, in, in a friendly manner <laughs> in, in, in greater detail. But that is, my, that is my take on it and describes the advent of Christ's kingdom and its inevitable growth and His institution of the new humanity. Remember, He is the firstborn of the dead, right? That is, He is, pre, he is the preeminent one. He is the author of the new humanity. And in the context of this rock growing into a mountain, we will see how that works out next time. So it should be a great Christmas message to uh, give us hope and encouragement once again as we reflect on the birth of Christ and His inevitable accomplishment. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank You again uh, for our time in Your Word. Thank You for helping us uh, get through this, this text. With Once again, that is, so, that is so hotly debated that is where there is so much disagreement. And I pray, Lord, that uh, how much more would, would I ask you to use a text like this to cultivate uh, a oneness of mind and heart within our own body that no matter where we may fall on the prophetic spectrum we would be able to look at this and with one voice say amen christ is lord and he reigns and that under that banner we may faithfully uh, preach your gospel in the hope and anticipation that all nations would come to you and bow the knee in faith and praise the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we also pray. Amen.